2: That's 15% off at burrowcom slash ACAST. In a week that saw a white teenager shoot dead 10 African-Americans in Buffalo, New York, apparently motivated by the so-called Great Replacement Theory... I speak to the journalist Michael Harriet and the writer Anne Applebaum about why this racist ideology has become mainstream on the American right and why we shouldn't be that surprised. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America.
0: We begin with breaking news from Western New York.
2: On Saturday afternoon in Buffalo, in upstate New York, an 18-year-old with a rifle entered a grocery store and shot 14 people, killing 10 of them. All of them were black. The shooter was not from this community. In fact, the shooter travelled hours from outside this community to perpetrate this crime on the people of Buffalo. The FBI quickly determined the shooting was a hate crime and a case of racially motivated violent extremism. The alleged killer had posted a 180-page screed, a manifesto, which showed that he'd been motivated in part by a belief in what's called the Great Replacement Theory. It holds that white people are at risk of being replaced by people of colour, by immigrants, by Muslims, losing their status, even losing their traditional culture.
1: Sadly, when I heard the news, it wasn't a surprise. In the US, these kinds of events happen sporadically, but very regularly.
2: Michael Harrod is a journalist, poet, and
1: author. As often as it happened, I don't think that anyone can just be callously oblivious and say, oh, it's just another one because people lose their lives. And so I think there was a mixture of sadness, of disappointment and the realization that sadly this probably won't have an effect on the policies and the attitudes that make these kinds of things a regular occurrence.
2: In the aftermath of the Buffalo Massacre, he wrote a piece for The Guardian looking at the history of the Great Replacement Theory in the United States and defining
1: exactly what it is. It begins with the idea that there is a conspiracy to change the demographics of the U.S. population and make it less white. It is alternately referred to as a political theory, as white genocide, in in essence that immigration policies, the policies for diversity, will make the white majority in this country a white minority and will replace white people with a multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalition.
2: Who in this theory is doing the replacing? Who's pulling the strings and actively coordinating this conspiracy in the minds of the, those who hold this theory? Well, it depends on who you talk
1: to. If they're in the political realm, they feel that it is the Democratic Party, the liberal, uh, left-leaning political establishment. If you talk to others, uh, some of the more traditional white supremacist uh, organizations and people who hold traditional white supremacist ideology, of course, they always say the Jews or a combination of the two, right, to create a conspiracy to eliminate white people. and Indeed, and the suspect
2: himself, I think he devoted 29 pages to the Jews, suggesting they are the sinister pullers of strings replacing white people with others. Uh, So he's in that camp. Um, But as you say, others, the more respectable version of this theory casts Democrats as the people behind, because they will be, according to this theory, the beneficiaries, because they will get more voters in. Now, you wrote this piece for us, for The Guardian, saying, kind of, hold on a minute, before you run away with the idea this is some new thing in uh, American political discourse, think again. Just to unpack for us why you hold that this isn't nearly as novel as some are trying to suggest it is.
1: One of the reasons is, if we look at history, this kind of fear that we are now calling the Great Replacement Theory, this fear of a white minority, has recurred through American history, you know, during the deadliest period of American violence, we call reconstruction, that was one of the biggest fears that freed slaves. When they got the right to vote, when they became citizens, white people in those states became minorities. And to preserve their superiority, to preserve their political and social standing, they enacted in a multi state uh, national act of violence that we call Reconstruction. We saw it again uh, with the fight and the backlash to the civil rights movement in the 1940s, in the 50s, up into the mid-60s. The resistance to integration was a fear of interracial relationships, of uh, white people losing power in all-white Uh, cities and schools. And so we've seen this happen regularly throughout American history. And it is not new. This is just the latest iteration of it.
2: I think some people only really became familiar, particularly think of people outside the United States, with this idea of replacement during those demonstrations, those marches by uh, white supremacists, far-right activists in Charlottesville in 2017.
1: You will not replace us! replace us yeah. you
2: will not replace us chanting either you will not replace us or jews will not replace us that w- verb replace but uh, as you say not new and the uh, writer for the atlantic helen lewis has just surfaced a line which i think is very striking it's a quote from the 1925 novel the great gatsby in which the character tom Buchanan says the idea is, if we don't look out, the white race will be will be utterly submerged. It's all scientific stuff. It's been proved. A novel that's nearly a hundred years old. The rich and repugnant uh, white character in that novel is
1: really voicing
2: what we would now call replacement theory.
1: Right, uh, and that that novel is indicative of an era, you know, a nationalist era that we saw this kind of political ideology spring up again with immigration policies uh that we look at as that great gatsby era that era of of the gilded age but it was marked by this national ideology that we had to preserve the whiteness of this country so not
2: new and i think you know the the evidence you've advanced is is very persuasive i'm just wondering if it is now either more blatant or in some ways more widespread into the political, into the body politic. And I'm struck by a poll that says nearly half of Republicans believe that the great replacement theory is true. We're going to talk later on in this podcast with our uh, second guest about some of the enabling or spreading of the idea that happens on the uh, American right, both in terms of politicians, but also in the media. But just on that point, do you believe that, yes, while this idea is not new, it is perhaps more common now in American political conversation, American political discourse?
1: So if you think about it, you know, if this fear was unfounded, if if it had no basis, then I think it would eventually disappear So it's been a longstanding fear among white Americans. And I think the proliferation of information, uh, the the availability of it uh, with the Internet, with, you know, the number of cable news choices. So it's hard to say whether it is more widespread or people are more comfortable with saying it because they see now that, oh, there's a guy in... Ohio and a guy in Chicago and a guy in California and a guy in Idaho and a politician on the news and a guy on Fox News who believe the same thing that I believe. It might be that as many Republicans or conservatives believed it 15, 20 years ago, but didn't have Facebook and Twitter to connect those ideas and make it mainstream.
2: That's very interesting. I mean the idea that these politicians maybe were thinking it already, and may, but people are hearing it more now. Uh, we, we, as I said, we're going to get into more what the Republican Party and those people who are sort of mainstreaming this idea are doing. I'm interested to know b- what your view is on whether or not this massacre in Buffalo will give any of those commentators, politicians, other figures on the right pause before they voice versions of this idea again, given that they now can point to evidence of what can happen in the mind of one young man, it seems, who hears these ideas and then goes out and kills 10 people? Well, I don't
1: think that there is any evidence that it will. So when you think about just policy in general, right? So we see these mass shootings happen again all too frequently, And we don't have a change in gun policy. We see these police shootings happen regularly and we don't have a change in policing policy. In this instance is just another instance of the political will being created to coalesce a group of voters that already believe this. You know, um, I think, you know, we kind of mischaracterize the great replacement theory as being pushed by politicians instead of a ideology that already exists and is being used by politicians to coalesce a political base and get them on their side. Michael, we've
2: talked a lot in our conversation about white people's fears of being replaced what about black Americans after given what's just happened in Buffalo, surely fear is pretty prevalent in black America right now?
1: Well, I think black Americans uh, for the most part, have become accustomed to it. you know, if there's this theory and this violence that proliferates for four hundred years, essentially, then you know you live daily with that fear. I don't think that, uh, you know, we saw what happened in 2015 at a church in Charleston.
0: Police say Roof walked into the historic Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston last night, sat down for nearly an hour at a Bible study there, and then opened fire killing nine people, six
2: women, and three men.
1: But I don't think it stopped black people from going to church. You know, we saw what happened in Charlottesville, but it didn't stop black people from attending rallies and protesting. And I don't think this will stop people from shopping simply because to be black in America is to know and to be aware that that fear exists and not just in these hyperbolic ways as much as it is in daily ways you know when you're walking through a majority white neighborhood you have that same feeling when you go into a nightclub for instance and it's mostly white you have that that same feeling so i don't think it is exponentially increased by events like this because black people have become so accustomed to it
2: michael harriet thank you so much
1: thank you for having me
2: We heard there from Michael Harriet that while great replacement theory is not new, it is being mainstreamed by politics and pundits on the American right. Now, there are a few more sage observers of the right in America and in the wider world than our next guest, Anne Applebaum. She is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. Her most recent book, is Twilight of Democracy. And she is particularly adept at spotting the trends that are changing right-wing politics across the globe. When Anne Applebaum joined me in the Politics Weekly America studio, I began by asking her what evidence she sees that great replacement theory is becoming mainstream on the American right.
0: Well, we can quote Tucker Carlson, Uh, who said on his show that liberals are trying to replace the current electorate with new, more obedient voters from the
1: third world. Let's say that again for emphasis, because it is the secret to the entire immigration debate. Demographic change is the key to the Democratic Party's political ambitions.
0: He has said it. Others have said it in milder terms. More generally, the arguments about immigration are a kind of substitute for arguments about race. So it is still unacceptable to be openly racist most of the time, even on Fox News, although it's no longer so unacceptable in some of the more extreme media of the of the far right. But it's unacceptable on Fox News. And so in lieu of open racism, they talk about immigration, they talk about immigration crime, they now have a a line about uh, there, are, there are baby formula shortages in America, and they have a line about baby formulas being delivered to babies on the border. Uh, of course, babies who are brought over the border to no fault of their own need to be fed, but while American families are scrounging and being told at the store they can only buy a certain amount of baby formula for their children, I think there are big questions. You know, but it's being, Americans are being deprived of it. So the idea that somehow, outsiders or brown-skinned people from the South are being favored over ordinary Americans is a repeated and common line that they use over and over and over again. And is
2: it right that there's a distinction and we should be careful to make a distinction between on the one hand the manifesto of the uh, alleged suspect or shooter in Buffalo which is talking about replacement meaning literally you know the language that he uses of sort of white genocide and the way that Tucker Carlson and others formulated, which is a kind of electoral dynamic. in that quote you read out from Tucker Carlson, the idea that it's about elections, that Democrats are trying to change the electorate in order to keep power. Is there an important or meaningful distinction between that electoral way of talking about it and this other sort of endangered white race way of talking about it?
0: I'm not sure there's a meaningful distinction. Um, the, the electoral way of talking about it is useful because it then taps into broader conspiracy theories about the election process. Why should we doubt the election process? Why should we not believe it? Why should we not seek to override it, which is um, one of the goals now of Trump and the people around Trump? Uh, They're trying to have people elected to office in America who will undermine state elections, um, particularly the presidential election.
2: And I suppose also it relates to what you said before, it is just vaguely gives a slight patina of sort of respectability to be, exactly. frame it in electoral terms rather than exactly. competition among the races. And um, I, I, we said earlier that you, uh, in this podcast, that uh, in a way, people shouldn't be too surprised by this eruption of great replacement theory. We heard from uh, Michael Harrett before that that's partly because it's been around a long time in the, in the national discourse. But there's an an extra level in which you particularly would not be surprised. And that's because these ideas are in circulation in Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, of which you are a great student and writer. Just tell us about the overlaps between this ideology, which seems to be gaining traction in the United States and where you've seen it from where we're sitting now in London, closer to home.
0: Well, the most open and the most aggressive proponent of great replacement theory, um, who has also very aggressively connected it to anti-Semitism, which is, by the way, one of the other important features of it, is Viktor Orban, who's the prime minister of Hungary.
2: You're probably aware that there are large-bodied predators who are swimming here in our waters. This is the trans-border empire of George Soros with tons of money and international heavy artillery.
0: Orban focused an enormous amount of state propaganda over many years now on the idea that George Soros, who is a Hungarian Jew by origin and who has given a lot of money to liberal and democratic causes over 30 years, that George Soros is seeking to replace Hungarians with foreigners. and the goal of this was to convince Hungarians that there was a Jewish plot to replace Hungary, to destroy and undermine Hungary. Again, it was never said quite like that. It was never openly anti-Semitic in that way. It was never focused on eliminating Jews in a – there was no Nazi language there. Um, But the idea was the Jews are secretly seeking to replace us. Um, and this, of course, idea has been picked up by others. There was a there have been a couple of synagogue shootings in America, or at least one synagogue shooting in America, the Tree and, of
2: Life synagogue in exactly,
0: which, yeah. in which the shooter also had picked up this same thesis that the Jews were seeking to replace white people with brown people or
2: with Muslims. But that idea is not, is it, being picked up by the Tucker Carlson's, the pundits, the Republican Party.
0: I was just reading today about um, the far right in Idaho, which is a state that you know everybody pays a lot of attention to Texas and Florida, who ha- you know where they have very aggressive Republican leaders and so on. But actually, Idaho is a state where very far right and very openly extremist groups are seeking to take over the Republican Party, and they're also openly anti-Semitic so there is an open link that has been there for many years and whether people seek to emphasize it or not in one particular television program or one particular campaign doesn't matter it's it's certainly part of it and orban has openly used that as part of his as part of his appeal to hungarians
2: and you mentioned george soros of course donald trump himself invoked george soros as a hate figure often in those 2018 midterms saying that soros was behind the caravan of migrants at the right, southern border and that border. was
0: another that was another version of the same thing so the so so orban really was the one who most openly um, and most he's the most mainstream leader who publicly evoked this link between the jews and this idea of replacement but others have
2: followed. So this idea of replacement is, 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 has currency on both sides of the Atlantic, there in America, in the way we've been describing, but also in Central and Eastern Europe. There, there has been some really interesting commentary suggesting that a new kind of ideology is forming within the Republican Party. There was a profile in the Washington Post of J.D. Vance, who just last week won the Republican nomination for the Senate in Ohio.
1: Now, I remember even 15 years ago, The proper way to talk about sexuality and gender was you had to be respectful of gay and lesbian Americans, LG. Then it became B, bisexual, T, transgender. Now, every time you see people's profiles or Twitter accounts, it's LGBTIAQ+. Which I don't even know what the hell that means.
2: And in that profile, it said that he was a really leading light of this movement. It defined it like this. It said, known as national conservatism or sometimes post-liberalism it is in broad strokes heavily catholic definitely anti-woke skeptical of big business nationalist about trade and borders and flirty with hungarian prime minister Viktor orban there it is again this connection do you see a kind of orbanist movement in america with inroads in the to the Republican Party.
0: Absolutely. Um, CPAC, which is a, an annual sort of conservative gathering, is taking place in Budapest sometime in the next few days, um, which is unprecedented. They've never had a meeting outside of the United States before. Be clear that the appeal of Orban to that group and to those people is explicitly authoritarian. So what they like about Orban is that he bans or claims to ban LGBT rights. They like that he um, controls what can and can't be said in universities. They like that he's used the power of the state to quash certain intellectual ideas and to eliminate people from, from intellectual life and from public life. So what they like about him is the fact that he's used state power to crack down on people who they don't like. And this is what they would like to be able to do either at the state level or the national level in the United States. And they're not very subtle about it. I mean, this is not a it's not a big secret. This is this is this is what their aim now is.
2: And people um, will know that Orban said this himself, that he believed in illiberal democracy. So still elections, but none of the norms of liberal democracy. Yeah, I mean, of course, of course, leadership.
0: that's a contradiction in terms there's yeah. no such thing as illiberal democracy. What he means is that he wants to change the rules of politics so that he never loses and that means changing frequently the constitution that means controlling all media that means using state resources to fund his party and to fund his party's political campaigns so much so that I, you'll you'll forgive me if i don't remember the exact numbers but there was a statistic a few days ago showing that the amount of spending on the election campaign for Fidesz which is Orbán's party was something like eight times the amount of all the other parties put together. So they, they have access to resources that nobody can match. Um, they have ways of, you know, busing in voters and organizing, uh, gerrymandering the, 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 the list so that they always have an advantage and they make sure that they can always win. That's their goal. And that's, of course, the goal of this part of the Republican Party, too, is to set up a system whereby they can't lose.
2: And who are the people you would associate with that part of the Republican Party? Who are the leading lights of what the Washington Post called national conservatism, but the kind of Orbanist republicanism you're describing?
0: A J.D. Vance would like to be a leader of it. Um, he's still in early days. Um, Tucker Carlson, obviously, is one of the spokesmen for it. Um, Laura Ingram, who's another Fox News commentator, is 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 another person who I would associate with it. I mean, then there's a whole group of, I mean, I, did, I didn't really want to call them philosophers, but they're people who write serious articles who are now associated with it, ranging from Michael Anton to Christopher Caldwell to, you know, Ron Dreher. I mean, Rod Dreher. there's a, there's a There's a group of thinkers who are now openly exploring and linking themselves to authoritarian ideas, and they're... I don't know. It's very hard for me to say whether they're really influential or not. I don't know that people in Idaho read them, um, but they're they're out there and they're seeking to promote their vision of an anti-democratic, autocratic America.
2: So where these two things meet, I noticed that this week you retweeted something from Liz Cheney, who said that the House GOP leadership has enabled white nationalism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism. Even if these people that we're talking about, in some ways the thinkers and others or JD Vance, they are at the moment a fairly fringe. Do you think Liz Cheney is onto something that some of these ideas are now actually gripping the sort of commanding of heights?
0: No, no. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, and Liz Cheney sits in the middle of it because she's she's in the or she was part of the House Republican caucus, and there's a significant part of that caucus. I mean, a couple of dozen people who I would characterize as far right, increasingly extremist. I mean, these are the people who questioned the results of the 2020 election, and who are attracted to extremist and anti-democratic ideas. And they're 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 very open about it. I mean, um, you know, in America, it's no longer a secret that that's the goal of that part of the party. I mean, I would still it's certainly no longer the majority of the it's or not yet, I should say. It's not yet the majority of elected Republican officials, but it's a very important part of the of certainly the House caucus.
2: And so their questioning of the 2020 election, more than questioning them, accusing it of being stolen is all part of this shift away from democracy into something quite dark, I'm just wondering what people who are opposed to this, whether they're inside or outside the Republican Party, in other words, whether they're Liz Cheney or whether they're Democrats and small-l liberals, what on earth do you think they can do about this trend, which is quite alarming?
0: So I'm part of a lot of conversations about that. And there is a, um, there's quite a lot of despairing at the moment, mostly because although quite a few Democrats, liberals, thinkers, analysts, and journalists understand that this is what's happening. The greater American public seems to be not bothered by it or not interested in it. Either they don't see it or they don't believe it or they don't care about it. And finding ways to reach people has been difficult. I mean, there's an interesting problem, which is that for politicians to talk about democracy and democracy being under threat seems to be an seems to be ineffective. People hear democracy. It's a big word. They turn off. It doesn't relate to their lives. They're worried about high petrol prices and inflation and the absence of baby formula.
2: Um, and It they seems hear, almost like an elite issue.
0: It seems like an elite issue. It seems like uh, something theoretical and far away. And no. the idea that it would affect their lives or change the way their schools work or their local councils work is it seems to be far away to people. And so I don't think anybody has yet found a solution I mean I, I actually spent a little bit of time earlier this year talking to center-right politicians in Europe who are dealing with maybe not quite as extreme version as you have in the United States but similar similar phenomenon in several European countries and you know they had different, arguments. I mean, some of them said what you really have to do is stick to bread and butter issues and move people on that. And some people did think that you could appeal to some higher idea of patriotism and national unity and and that that would be a way to defeat it. And people are looking for the right language and not only in America. I just don't know that anybody's found a kind of a formula yet. It seems, as I said, it seems to be hard to make people care.
2: I suppose that latter approach is what Joe Biden did in 2020, an appeal to sort of unity and healing. But it only goes so far. We can see that from his opinion poll rating.
0: Joe, Joe Biden's campaign did two things. One was that it focused very hard on unifying issues. So there were a lot of ads about family and work, you know, you work every you go to work every day. You because you care about your family, we're here to help you in in achieving those things. I mean, in other words, it looked for broader issues and it also sought to to you know, it used a lot of patriotic language and imagery that looked to reach across uh, some kind of narrow partisan democratic divide. And it it, it was successful partly because people were so sick of Trump. Whether it will work in this year's congressional elections seems unlikely. The Democratic Party has not been able to achieve that same cross-partisan, non-partisan language it doesn't seem able to pull in people from the other side but we'll see i mean uh, american elections are now so volatile and we're we're still pretty far away from from the vote so who knows
2: there's a, been a batch of primary results across america this Weak. I'm just wondering what you make of those in terms of the trends you've been describing. On the one hand, big Trump guy Madison Cawthorn lost in North Carolina. It appears as if Dr. Oz, the celebrity uh, medic, in quotes, favoured by Donald Trump, also has, it seems as we speak, uh, hasn't pulled it out in Pennsylvania. But on the other hand, also there in the uh, governor's race there, a real stop the steal guy, January the 6th guy, Doug Mastriano, seems to well has won the Republican nomination to be governor of Pennsylvania. I mean, the all three of those were backed by Trump. Some have won, some haven't. What does that tell us about Trump's pull and the drift overall of the Republican Party that you've been describing?
0: I think it's mixed. I mean, I think it's certainly true that the people competing in those primaries are seeking Trump's approval. They go down to Mar-a-Lago and they have a conversation with Trump. And Trump, the first thing he asked them is, do you think the 2020 election was stolen? And they have to say yes. And if they don't say yes, then he doesn't support them. So certainly he is trying to create a cadre of people who both who believe the election was stolen in 2020 and who could theoretically help steal it in 2024. I mean, I think they are planning to try the same game in 2024 or whatever they tried in 2020, namely to change the results of the Electoral College votes at the state level so that even if Trump loses, Trump wins. Um, But again, we've, we've got a long way to go before that happens. I mean, the electorate may be more mixed about those people and about Trump. And there's some indication in polling that support for Trump is weakening. Interest in the 2020 election is slipping. People have more urgent things to worry about, like inflation, like high petrol prices. And that that seems to be something that doesn't pull them in as much. Certainly, I think whatever happens, there will be Trumpism in the Republican Party will be a big factor, both in 2022 and 2024. But I, I can't tell you right now how much. And And I should say there are examples of other kinds of Republicans trying to fight back.
2: Last thing, how explicitly do you think we should be prepared for Donald Trump to get in 2024 in terms of great replacement theory and some of the kind of Orbanist politics we've been talking about? Are those, in some ways, implicit themes going to become explicit in 2024 and the next iteration of Trumpism, do you think?
0: I think the next iteration of Trumpism, were Trump to win, would be openly autocratic. The early version of Trump In 2017 and 2018 when he appointed moderate people to run various departments, you know, whether it was Rex Tillerson at the State Department or whether it was Jim Mattis in the defense department that will we will not get that instead we will have very radical people who seek to fire everybody and replace as much of the government as possible very quickly there's a sort of political theory about that floating around too uh, on the in the in this kind of far right intellectual world that you know that there's a justification for sacking everybody and that nobody should have job security and that all civil servants can be replaced and that would include not just diplomats but it would include the people who measure water for water quality and the people who are are responsible for predicting hurricanes and all those other kinds of people. So they
2: should be loyal to the leader.
0: Everybody should be loyal. Uh, There's no such thing as a a merit-based appointment. Um, People who know stuff have no respect and have no particular standing. And the only qualification for government service should be absolute loyalty. So this is a very, um, the United States had a version of that kind of that kind of bureaucracy in the 19th century. Other countries and other eras have had it as well, and we know what it produces. It produces extremely bad government. But that's not what they're interested in. They're interested in total control and also in, as I said, changing the rules so that they don't lose again. The idea is to never lose. The idea is to do what Orban did, to to shape the system, to rework the system so that you never lose.
2: And that you're never replaced.
0: And you're never replaced.
2: Anne Applebaum, thanks very much for coming on Politics Weekly America. Thank you. And that is all from me for this week. Before I go, I must suggest you take some time out of your busy week to listen to the latest series of The Guardian's Comfort Eating podcast with our restaurant critic, Grace Dent. This week, she spoke to Top Gear legend, co-presenter of The Grand Tour, James May, all about his favourite snacks and inability to share food. So search for Comfort Eating with Grace Dent on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens, the executive producer is Maz Eptahash, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian.
1: I'm Grace Dent, and I am back. For third helpings of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me and more celebrity guests like Big Zoo, James May and Self Esteem as we throw the cupboard doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. This is a niche sexual thing for people. Uh. Northern women eating carbohydrates. (laughs) Comfort Eating returns on the 17th of May with new episodes released every Tuesday. And you can see Grace doing Comfort Eating Live for the first time on Wednesday, 25th of May at the podcast show in Islington, London. Her special guest is entrepreneur, podcaster and TV personality, Jamie Lang. Best known for his time as a regular on Made in Chelsea. That's Comfort Eating Live with Jamie Lang on the 25th of May. Book your tickets now at gigsandtours.com.